So we've got episode six of Designed Company podcast, How Time Flies. Brother, yeah. introduce this one, please, for us. Well, I mean, technology and software for a while. So I felt like this is a great topic to cover through Design Company. Uh, and disclaimer to the listeners here, you don't need to be a developer or software engineer to really like get value from today's conversation. So today's really more looking about, you know, what is software? Why do we use it? questioning how software is currently built and really kind of trying to get a better understanding of its role in our lives and how we can really just re-envision software going forward. Awesome. Right. So do we start with purpose first? Well, the good old first area of design company purpose. Um, so here, you know, there's a very simple question, which is what is the purpose of software? Um, and in that respect, I think software is actually very simple. If you brought it down, it's about gathering information and then doing something with the information, whether visualizing it, running calculations, to help a human being make a real world decision. Um, so let's say for example, Uber. Uber is gathering all the data about your location, the drivers, et cetera. Um, and, then they are, and then they are deciding which driver to put you, to, to take to you to get you to a location. Uh, let's look at Palantir using the defense industry. They are gathering all the data about financial records, uh, crime, etc., to help law enforcement make decisions about where to send people, where to track stuff, etc. Uh, let's look at airline booking software. They're looking at an airline's scheduling system, the available flights, the routes, your preferences as a user, and helping you decide what you're going to be doing. So read these are different examples. What they help us show is that software, whatever you do at the end of the day, is about getting data and then using that data to make a real-world decision. Uh, what are your thoughts on that, Jason? My thoughts are actually that that is perhaps a systemic purpose of software. Uh -huh. But actual purpose of software before we even get into any of the data and so on yeah. is really to enable processes that are otherwise hardware or physical to happen in the digital realm. Hmm. That's really kind of how I, how I look at it, which is really to enable then access to, do, to economy effectively without uh, physical presence. That's really how I would look at software uh, in, in that kind of like uh, philosophical uh, hmm. view. The data is, is an aspect of that, which we'll cover. But um, yeah, that's my, that's my view on it. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. I mean, before we jump into the people to kind of bounce off what you said, I did have a very systemic view. But essentially, my point there, um, and what you said very well as well, is that software is about enabling things to happen in the real world. So as we're going to see in the rest of this podcast, there's a lot of conversation about interfaces, APIs, all this kind of stuff. But really software is, as you said, just about taking things that are offline, online, but then always trying to make sure that that online thing that is happening has an effect in the tangible, real physical world. Um, yeah, but it, it also, it's, a, it's an interesting thing because right now we're having this podcast and like it's happening through Zoom and then it will be on iTunes and then it will be on YouTube and mm -hmm. so on. So there's a whole bunch of software there that's happening that we we won't really necessarily know how it will impact the physical world it will because a lot of people will action this in physical 
but yeah, so there's an interesting intersection of digital to physical. Yeah. So, I mean, actually talking about you and I, the people then, so that's the, the next theme of design company. Um, I would actually say there are three groups of people. You don't even think there's two, right? The person using the software and the person making the software. But there's increasing a new class of citizen as well, which is the machines, because more and more software is being developed to allow machines to communicate with each other. So if I kind of just recap, you know, what are the main roles here? We have the person using the software. They're using that software because they want to solve a problem. And they're using that software because it's better than the solution they currently have to solve that specific problem or it's a problem that's not being solved. Uh, then we have the maker, and this is something you have a huge expertise on, which is basically the person that is showing empathy. So figuring out how is this person feeling, what is going on in their world, and then has the ability to translate that into a working solution. Um, and then the machines which we talked about, but we won't go too much into detail, who are essentially shifting information between different platforms. Uh, what are your thoughts on the theme of people? Yeah, so people that are involved in software making and using, you know, eventually in UX design, these can be subdivided into lots and lots of different categories and uh, uh, areas, you know, because, for example, UX designers, you could say, are really creating the blueprints for most part of what the software should work like. But then there's developers, there is the different uh, 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 levels of users. So you could have users that are just kind of let's say free tier users paying users you've got administrators you've got the actual systems uh mm. figurators um uh, when you get into government software it becomes different uh, uh departments in the government uh you know that cross collaborating this can get incredibly uh complex and complicated with mm. roles and rules and accessibility um, uh, permissions that, that people are granted to, to use different pieces of functionality and so on. So, so, but on a simple level, yes, there is the makers of the software, users and machines that might be using that, yes. Um, that's actually one thing you, you, you raise that is quite interesting, particularly on the user side. So yes, you know, it's not just the users of the software, it's all the different people around that, those managing the security, the permissions, administration, et cetera. Um, and so one thing that is quite important, I think we've seen a huge wave of enterprise software in the past years where you have very complex functionality and where it becomes a badge of honor to know and use that software. So especially we're talking about setting up administrative configuration, access permissions, I think there's a huge topic there in terms of understanding that even configuring the software is a user experience in itself. Um, and even if it is generally what we call the power user, so the software expert who is doing that, um, even there, we should be operating with empathy, trust, understanding to, okay, why are they configurating the software? What is the real issue uh, being solved? And so, you know, that's the meme that you'll see a lot of places where it says, you know, Google software, one input text with the results, your software, one input text, seven buttons, three options. So really trying to understand what even the power user wants and going straight to that instead of leaving it a total mess for them, is super important for the makers to keep in mind. Yeah, I mean, just as a kind of trivia point, I've heard, for example, from an SAP consultant, uh, that SAP as software has over 8,000 tables in the, in the back end. So even just comprehending the, 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 sort of the, the database schema of mm -hmm. SAP uh, requires major education to know what's in there, right? And then how to configure that for each individual uh, organization, so on becomes, uh, you know, 
the next level of complexity and so on. So, so I mean, talking about configuration, then that's actually the next theme of uh, design company, which is innovation. Um, sorry, before we even mention the systems, yeah. yes, my bad. <laughs> Never skip steps. Never, Never skip steps. Especially the system. Which is the most <laughs> um, my bad. So yeah, I mean, potentially, if I look at the systems around software, we have four essentially. So. Um, you know, the research, which is empathizing with the problem. And, you know, you are a UX expert, so you always have a lot of say here. The design, so actually taking our research and, you know, creating our initial concepts of what we're going to build. The development. I mean, obviously, all of these involve discussing with the user. But then also, finally, the usage by the person and the feedback cycle. So then going back to step one, taking in feedback and building that into the software. What are your thoughts on the systems around software? Well... I had recently had a debate about this with a, with a friend around the process and so on. But ultimately, first thing that needs to be mapped out and is mapped out is, is the process of, of how things work right now, the current process, then the uh, future process, the, the, the aspirational process that we want to see. So, for example, in typical bank, you might see people going into a branch to place a check that process may be uh, surpassed by people having a digital wallet where they are their own bank. These are quite two different, very, very different processes that do effectively the same, create the same outcome, uh, mm. but require a very, very different systemic backbone for it to work. And uh, so, so, systems are very very essential straight after people because you've got to know first uh which people are going to be available uh for 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 a company to to build the system and often the time companies do have very big aims in what kind of systems they want to build but they've got like uh, i don't know five pounds of budget to build it with and then you realize hold on a second you want a you know that that's why the memes go around where it's like the the client budget, the client uh, aspirations is like a Jaguar, right? And the client budget is this kind of tatted up old Lada, uh, right? So it's like, if you've got the budget of a Lada, you can't be expecting to build a Jaguar. So this is where actually, again, strategic thinking uh, comes into play to actually design systems that are at an appropriate level of both capability and complexity for the given evolution stage of the company certainly um, and i think that again that's why you'll see this difference between the more simple softwares for the small and medium enterprises and the really large complex multi-hundred k or even multi-million dollar contracts for the enterprise so you know when we talk about systems we often think you know processes uh, also mainly like it stuff uh, but i think also systems is how we develop software and there's a lot of talk, as you've known over the past years, about this agile stuff. So I'd actually like to hear your thought. What do you think of agile and all these like methodologies around building software? So uh, my argument has been over the years that you know we've got this TQM, total quality management, which is notionally what waterfall approach tries to be, and then you've got Kaizen, which is what agile is trying to be. And then companies go for either or, but you realize that design plays a role of TQM, total quality management for most part. And then agile plays the role of actually putting that into practice. And you need both in a balanced way to actually create some, something that's sustainable long-term 
and that actually serves in an evolving way the customer uh, on an ongoing basis. Makes a lot of sense. I like what you said about balance. So often what I've seen is kind of the worst case scenario of that balance where a company says they're agile, but actually they're operating against a waterfall-based set of features that will not change, not really going to the details of how that's going to be built and then using agile as an excuse for lack of planning. So I totally agree there that agile can be dangerous if you're just kind of going on an iterative process without a greater vision. So I think they're like a really good working software development process is saying, okay, you know, what is the outcome we want? You gave the example earlier on of checks and of a digital wallet. The outcome is move money from point A to B. And so I think it's really important that as builders of software that we keep in mind, what is the outcome we're looking for? You know, what systemic backbone are we offering? How is that innovative? And then taking an approach where we're iterating, um, doing things in a way that we're taking into account feedback, we need to drop things, add things, all in pursuit of that final vision. Um, so once that's all done, you know, your software goes to market. Um, we have a system now that's working. We're also talking about systems and what do you see as systematic best practices for software that is living, you know, that's not monolithic, but that responds to user feedback that is improved once it's in the user's hands. What, what's your insights there in terms of actually improving the users in the ongoing evolution of software? So this is something that requires continuous uh, tuning back into people, the actual users, how mm. they're using it, and having a systemic way of tracking the performance of the software and then acting on the things that really are identified as value adding to those people. So that's how innovation should be done. Uh, but in a lot of companies, the innovation is done on some sort of gut feel uh, based around, you know, I as a product owner feel that this should be done next, etc. Or I've been put under pressure to uh, do this or that. And, and it doesn't really have a systemic people-based uh, routing in it. And, um, you know, that ultimately ends up failing. Uh, but if we take a people and systemic approach to this, then innovation becomes a thing that can continuously add value to everyone. Um, so you raised the next topic of a design company yourself, that of innovation. Um, so I'd just like to kind of recap, there are a couple of forms of innovation I've seen in the past and why I think innovation is going now. And I'd love to hear your feedback and criticism. So I think over the past 10, 15 years, the main forms of innovation that we've seen have been number one, um, the connection of disparate data sources. So, you know, whereas before one software was connected to one database, what you've seen is like an API economy and platform, like all the major SaaS vendors now have APIs. And so really this ecosystem software is whatever your interface is, that's a really big thing. Um, and that's more the machine user we talked about. But on the user side, the thing that we've also seen there is a lowering of the barrier to entry. So if you look at software in the 80s, 90s, early 2000s, it was still kind of the experts that were using that. Um, but what we see now is, you know, everyone has apps on their phone. Even a 70-year-old grandma will have Facebook, a couple of different other apps. And so really it's been all about making software accessible to the masses. And that has gone along as well with this transition from desktop to mobile. So having software in the palm of your hand. Um, now, this is kind of an ethical thing, but what I've seen a lot is that the, a lot of the software innovation, and we've talked about this previously, has been in the B2C, so business-to-customer market. And because there is more of a freemium model, all the designs have been around captivating users and getting them to come back to the software. 
you know, sell us more attention, which can be monetized for advertising. And what we're seeing now is more of a rise in B2B software, especially as self-employment is increasing. And so this idea of the person has to use the software every single possible minute actually has to be changed. And I think the vision we have to have there is, how do I improve the ratio between that time spent on the software vs value gains from the software? And ideally, you should be spending as little time as software on the possible to solve your problem. Correct. The perfect enterprise software is software that requires the least amount of interaction from the users to create the most amount of output and insights and that the data that, that companies really looking for, uh, productivity really, uh, which is why designed company software has been like that in, in its design. You use it for a few seconds a day and the company gets enormous amount of value out of it. And so that will have to be the, from the first principles approach to software design and making software products because attention span is a limited resource very much. Certainly. Uh, and so actually you're talking about value and design company software. I think that ties in perfectly with products. So today people talk about software products and you've seen this, in, you've seen this yourself as an investor and somebody who works with tech companies. There's so many people today that are building an app and just like starting with a solution but actually, you know, if we look at products in the pure design company sense, it's what is the value produced by your offering and your systems? And I think people are really confusing sexy interface loads of features with the final value that should be derived from the software, which is what it's about ultimately. What are your thoughts on products um, with regards to software? Well, it's uh, the, the idea of what, what is sexy, right, is, is, is quite an interesting one because most people actually perceive things based on their visual cues. Mm. That's why there's been such a massive drive towards uh, visual beauty, okay? Mm -hmm. But actually no kind of thinking or very little thinking about how does this actually work? Whereas really the companies that have made a big uh, impact on software and hardware are companies that make things that work and function perfectly or as perfectly as possible that eventually have to look a certain way because that's the only way they can look. I'm talking specifically about MacBooks and various kind of Apple uh, products. So it's, th there is a statement in UX design, um, which, which um, says form follows function. In other words, you first have to define how something can function optimally and then the form will come out of that as an outcome. But most of the time, what companies do is they create a form and then they try and like smash it into the functionality of the system. What you end up with is bad form and bad function, which is the most terrible situation to be in. And that's what a lot of companies right now are suffering from because they've been tested in real sense of, can we do this really optimally in different economic climate? And the answer is no, because the software wasn't built from the first principles. It wasn't built in the way of uh, form follows function. Okay. So, I mean, well, in terms of like the future of software, then do you see like really healthy best practices? If you had to kind of summarize them, what would be like some of the key best practices to keep in mind for software 
builders going forward, software makers? The best practice is uh, I and people like myself have been following for 15, 20 years. And what you realize is that this is an incredible thing that I, I'm still digesting myself. There are things that I've personally built and designed 10 years ago that with little to no touching up are still working perfectly fine today. Why? Because they've built, been built to best practices and designed to best practices. And um, meanwhile, what companies seem to be thinking is that they have to iterate their software every two days and blah, 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 and so on. Um, actually, that, that's an anti-pattern potentially in itself. Uh, there often are spikes of when we need to do new work, but eventually there is the product uh, maturity uh, stage where hmm. a product ought to be mature enough to be you know, very good uh, to be used continuously and so on. Um, and, and what you then create is a situation where users know exactly how the product works and they're happy to use it in and out quick and get their job done and that's it. Uh, so, so that's one of the best practices really is to understand when you are done, like when, when it's complete on some level and, and to say we're not going to actually be changing much there, if anything. Uh, and, and, and then good design uh, locks into that and, and enables an approach to getting there in phases as quickly as possible from first principles to, to get that done functionally first perfectly and then uh, form-wise uh, also perfectly that follows that function. So um, th there's loads of UX design best practices uh, that um, have been ushered in over the years, you know, and literally I do courses on this uh, separately. So, so it's worth even looking at uxcoach.me for, for that kind of stuff. Fair enough. So, I mean, uh, talking about software products actually ties nicely into the next theme of money um, in design company framework. And the reason is um, you and I have both seen so many projects, you know, whether personally or in the markets, that have been a huge waste of money, people's time, etc. So before we even talk about, you know, the buyer's view, let's talk about the maker's view there. How can we like save money and invest our money in the right way when building a software solution? So I've often argued an approach to software development, which starts not even with KPIs, but with money. And the idea being that you would draw up a cash flow forecast first and then work out what is actually monetarily sustainable and when in terms of what we're proposing to build. Because this kind of thinking with regards to software is usually... Uh, considered at a very late stage where companies already committed a lot to development and they start maybe after a first phase or another phase which is where agile kind of surfaces this up but in, in terms of pure agile what you would want to do is you want to pre-plan uh, and say hey what are we going to commit to that's actually going to monetarily work out in the first iteration not in seven iterations down the mm. road okay um because in agile companies, companies start having this massive vision 
and then over seven sprints, they reduce it down to something that's completely useless. And then they say agile doesn't work. It's like, no, you don't work. You know, you as a human have got your mind misconfigured to not understand that software actually costs the most at the beginning where it's being built. And then over time, it's supposed to return value. Uh, but actually, even that curve, we took always about flattening curves. You can flatten that curve too and say, how can we invest now and return the value straight away and then invest more to return more value and so on? That would be the most healthy way to approach that. So, and I've never actually seen anyone do this uh, apart from myself in some sort of closed circumstances. Uh, where I've literally decided not to build a whole bunch of software because in the cash flow forecasts, I've not been able to work out how it could pay for itself. Uh, and I think those are some of the best software that I've ever built, the software that I haven't built. <laughs> Makes a lot of sense. I mean, you know, for me, as a software developer and founder of a startup, um, I think the key thing for me really in my learning journey has been learning to actually, as you said, don't build a bunch of things. Focus on the one primitive that can return cash from the first iteration. And I mean, I had so many bad advice from people saying, oh, just start with like a tiny thing. You know, you can improve it. And my focus has always been aggressive to say, I don't want to build a huge cathedral from day one, but I do want something that generates sufficient value from day one that people will be ready to pay for that. Um, and so in that respect, I think people either go too, too extreme in the lean startup way of, oh, let me just release something terrible and then wonder why I don't have any clients or let me commit to a two-year project and wonder why it doesn't fit the market need. Um, <laughs> so yeah, pretty... so it's, it's another thing of a balance there in terms of what is the time slice, you know, that you're willing to uh, test through. <clears throat> and sometimes you have this sort of like a Kanban approach where people iterate daily and then, you know, after two or three days, they're like, well, this is not working and so on. It's like you haven't even run a single test against that piece of functionality. Now you're questioning the piece of functionality. So on that sense, I've seen Kanban go completely wrong because people would discard potentially great ideas too early on. Or on the other side of waterfall, you get this situation which in anti-patterns of project management is called death march, where only the CEO doesn't know that the project is dead, but everyone else who's working on it knows that it's got no chance of ever seeing the light of the day. And those death marches can last for three, four, five years and cost literally, I'm, I'm thinking of a big corporation, um, Old Mutual, that spent $400 million on a new website that's never been built. <laughs> that's a classic death march. And it's kind of not funny in a sense that, you know, imagine having $400 million in cash right now, you could buy majority of, of world's airlines for that money. Yeah. Pretty incredible thought. Um, I mean, definitely there, the issue of wasting too much money on stuff. Um, and so there's actually one thing I want to talk there in terms of the buyer's point of view. So people invest in software. Um, I just wanted to look at some interesting figures uh, before we go on this call. Uh, one I read a while ago was quite interesting, which is the fragmentation of, um, of problem solving. And so what I mean by that is that, you know, a decade, two decades ago, company would have on average, you know, about 40 vendors. That number has now gone 10x up to about 400. And so what we've seen is, you know, people have gone from buying huge contracts with one supplier 
to actually fragmenting the fulfillment of their needs and going to different software suppliers for different areas. And so really having specialized companies to solve specialized problems, which you know, is all even facilitated by the API economy, the SaaS model. But so just one interesting figure here I wanted to meditate about, you were talking about wasting 400 million on a custom solution. Um, so it's estimated that you know, the, the good old you know, licensed on-premise model, so you pay 75K per license, whatever, that's only actually 9%. You then spend 91% of the actual money on total cost of ownership on fixes, patching, downtime, the infrastructure, customizations, all that stuff. So it's basically kind of like building it internally, except you get the privilege of paying somebody externally. And so what's been quite interesting with the SaaS model is that we've also gone through this increased specialization and average lower tickets, but also lower complexity of usage with about two thirds of the cost um, being assignable to the actual use of the software. And one third, and keep in mind this is across all companies, so someone will just be 100 on the software, and actually only one third being about implementation and training. And so I think that the big thing here is all about you know, people understanding that they don't want to be fooled into vendor lock-in and actually having their problem solved in a fluid way and loyalty coming from the fact that, okay, I like the way you're working with me. I like the relationship we have. I want to work continuously with this company and not oh, damn, this company has extreme inside knowledge on my IT infrastructure, and I don't really have another choice but to sign up for another five-year contract. Okay, so what happens is that you have different types of companies, and notionally using the design company model, you could say you, you've got purpose companies, you've got people companies, you've got systems companies, innovation, products, money, and growth companies. Okay, mm. so if if a company is a... Tech, truly technological company, a tech company, tech startup, then it ought to have some radically new tech inside it that is potentially its own product as well. Mm. So Anya is a tech company because it's got radically new tech that, that you've built from the ground up. That is the product, okay? Mm-hmm. So Anya should have its own tech in-house as much as possible. Never outsource that because that's your core thing. But sometimes you have companies that are, let's say, people companies. Let's say they're organizing a bunch of events worldwide. Uh, you know, they're, they're, they're party you know, companies. Let's get together. Let's have fun, blah, blah, blah. They, they, they've got zero tech. It's about community building, blah, blah, blah. So they can utilize external things and so on to, to you know, lever, leverage uh, SaaS, various SaaS tools to organize a party, okay? Um, and similarly, money companies should not outsource money to other people because that's their core uh, competency. Uh, and so then the question is, which software should be outsourced or insourced and developed? And how should that also be strung together? Because yes, it's a complexity around creating these mashups when you're using multiple SaaS tools and so on. And this is again why we designed this um, designed company software in a way that it can serve other companies in that core competency where typically most companies are very, very um, well, they, they really don't have anything for the most part, which is keeping a pulse on how individual staff members are feeling and what kind of communal uh, overall thinking that's, that's creating inside the company 
doing that very efficiently with least amount of disruption to the staff, getting the most amount of quality structured data back, and relatively speaking, that costing almost nothing, and it being very easy to integrate in the overall operation of the company so that it doesn't disrupt any of the core competencies that the company has, whether it's a people's company, system innovation, products, mining, or growth company. So again, this has all been thought into the design and the approach of design company uh, uh, system and the model because this is based on real world examples of what has and hasn't worked, of various death marches that have costed billions to never deliver versus whatever the opposite of well life march, right, is life march, which is you're spending tiny amounts to create awesome impact. Well, I mean, that's a perfect transition into the theme of growth there. Uh, and I love what you said, shifting the polarity from being heads down, going to a death march to actually keeping a pulse of what's happening, knowing where you're going, this purposeful growth that we talked about and actually doing something that makes sense, you know? So either cutting, cutting a project straight away or just redefining projects so they're working on the impactful stuff and not something that's just done to appease a hypothetical stakeholder who's never going to read the report anyway. So in that respect, I'd just like to ask you then, growth, you know, how can we envision growth in the theme of software? Well, so I, I want to make something very, very clear here. Uh, as, a, as a software consultant in a typical world, which is now dying, okay, because we're now talking about new world that's emerging post-pandemic, the waste that's been practiced for decades now by quote-unquote software consultants, which is really just salespeople who are looking to get more work out of companies, that's going to die because it's never been sustainable. And I've always advised companies to commit the least amount of commitment to the most amount of output as early as possible, but also to understand and know that in software, and this is what we get taught in software engineering, and it doesn't really ever get like communicated across the clients, that you can't be having an exponential return on investment all the time, right? Maybe at the beginning, you feel like a lot has been done, which it does get done. But as the software gets built, it becomes more complex. So you're going to get, relatively speaking, lower rate of return, potentially, in some sense, but you're going to have a more sturdier offering, okay? And so that's normal. What the typical consultants would do is that they promise the world and then never really deliver anything, whereas I would never promise anything <laughs> but deliver something straight up but make them aware of the fact that as we go along, these things do get more uh, uh, heavier on the maintenance side, okay? But that needs to be pre-planned into the growth of everything as opposed to come as a shock and surprise down the line, at which point typically what companies do is they say to their consultants, they messed up, they did this, they did, which they did because they basically sold them a lie. They sold them that it's all going to be fine. And guess what? It's not going to be fine. 
And that's what a lot of companies are finding now that it's not going to be fine because they haven't built this software from the first principles and haven't really questioned, is this really needed or not? And how are we maintaining this? Maybe even in the times when everyone has to be maybe laid off, maybe work from home, maybe be paid less money, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, can't access the hardware, the software, you know, can they access the things and so on. So, so that kind of preparedness hasn't been there and then the growth stifles over time. So we've got to, got to move towards a situation where sustainable growth is both pre-planned and practiced at every stage of iteration, knowing that uh, crap will hit the fan at some point and the software has to continue to grow at that time, not just survive, but grow. It makes a lot of sense. So, I mean, as, as we always do in our, in our design company podcast, I think we love to come up with a more of the story here and a key insight. So for me, at least as a software developer, somebody who loves that software, who sells software, who deals with software, um, I love this idea of first principles. So for me, at the end of the day, whatever we're doing, it's all about understanding that whatever build we're building right now, we're solving a problem, but we first of all need to design our software from first principles. And secondly, we need to understand that the problem may evolve. And so therefore we can't be like all the big software consultants that sell multi-million pound software that will never be maintainable. We need to build something that solves a real problem, but that is also evolutive and that is organic and that can be subject to change and evolution over time without fear of burning the whole house down. Correct. And having a very easy to digest universal model to reference back to is the sanest approach to this. Otherwise, you just get insanity. <laughs> <laughs> Makes sense. Well, um, on that note, I uh, enjoyed the conversation today and uh, I'll see you on the next one. Thank you very much, my brother. Likewise. Take care.